Hello, and welcome to the IBCD Care and Discipleship Podcast. I'm Craig Marshall, and today we're going to be discussing a listener question with Jim Neuheiser. He's the director of the Christian Counseling Program at RTS Charlotte, and he also serves as IBCD's executive director. Jim, it's good to have you with us, especially back here on the left coast. Yesterday, (laughs) I was at Disneyland. The day before, I was at the beach. It's going to be seven degrees in Charlotte in two days, so it's nice to be here. (laughs) That's great. I want to discuss a question that came in from one of our listeners. And um, they wrote in and said, I've been counseling a couple for a while. I feel like we're stuck. And each meeting becomes a session where they both tell me what happened the last week. And it's a lot of he said, she said, argument type um, discussion. I feel like we're not getting anywhere. What can I do? So Jim, as you hear that, one of the questions that I have is what are some things that you tell yourself or you think about when you start to feel like you're stuck in counseling someone else? Probably... The worst job I've ever done in counseling happened to be with a room full of observers where I had a groundhog day counseling case where I just kept having the same session over and over again for almost a year. And so sometimes we learn best from our mistakes, but there are certain things I think I learned from that. So God willing, I will never do that again. As you look back on that, you know, some of it is okay techniques, and I, I want to get to that in a, in a little bit of of things you can do in the counseling. But what goes through your own heart, or what do you, what do you think we need to examine in ourselves as counselors when that's taking place? Well, First Thessalonians five fourteen encourage the faint hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, but admonish the unruly as well. And so, from my standpoint, sometimes it does require a great deal of patience because you can get frustrated when you feel like you have to keep saying the same things again and again, and they're not getting it, or they keep doing the same things again and again, or they're not doing their homework. But so the requirement to be gracious and to be patient, but also recognizing that not every counselee is tenderhearted and is receptive to the truth. There are some people who are unruly. There are some people who are very stubborn, and we can't change anybody. So acknowledging our dependence on God in the situation and and realizing where we may be starting to put too much pressure on our own efforts to make something happen. Yeah, you'll find yourself praying the little Nehemiah type prayers where he says, Lord, help me when he's in the presence of the king and say, here we go again. And Lord, help me to have some insight, some approach, some scripture, work on the hearts of these people so we won't stay as stuck as we are. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it sounds like our temptation a lot of times will be to point the finger at the person for not changing. And part of it can be to stop and examine our own hearts and then direct that God word instead of against the other person. And I think that something you're getting to as well in terms of being God word is that I'm not just concerned about their behavior, but their behavior, it's out of the heart, the mouth speaks, it's from within that sin comes. And so I'm not trying to counsel them merely to new patterns of behavior, but what is it in their heart that's not changing, which leads to this behavior being repeated? And it could be that there are motives, idols, desires that have not yet been addressed by me. It could also be that we've tried to address them and this person is absolutely clinging to their lust for control or whatever the idol may be. And nothing I've said, nothing the Bible has said has begun to loosen their clinging grip upon that. What are some of the practical things you've sought to do in situations where you seem to be stuck? Again, thinking of my most disastrous failures, 
I have in one occasion actually asked them to record their fights, just to carry around their phones and to push record just because it was like they were living in two different worlds when they would describe an interaction. And somebody either had cognitive impairment where they could not adequately recall what happened or I was being lied to. And that was a desperate measure on my part. One concern that was expressed is that, well, maybe if you turn on the recording, they won't do the bad behavior. And so well, that works too, as far as I'm concerned. If you know, God hears everything and I'm going to hear some of it. And if, if you always have the record button on and that makes you nice, it's something. Uh, but actually what did happen is that what I heard when one of them was recording the fight uh, was very revealing in terms of what was going on compared to what I was hearing in the counseling session. So that's kind of one extreme example. Then there are other things less extreme. Yeah, I've had a few situations where I've had someone record uh, the situation and they're saying, wow, we're on our best behavior. And it's often been surprising how even their best behavior is still very indicative of what you've been trying to deal with, or or you can just get a lot from it, even if for them, it's a very restrained situation. And in, in the case I experienced is like the proverb says that like a city with the walls broken down as a man who has no control over his spirit is that a person who really loses control with anger often gets to a point they don't care who hears or that happens sometimes in the counseling room as well. In this case, the individual in the counseling room always managed to keep it together. But finally, I don't care if this is being recorded and uh, the flesh just was on display. So one thing, and, and you're saying it's it's kind of a more extreme thing, is is the recording. But that can be a, a helpful tool, especially if you feel like you're not getting what's really happening. What are some other things when you feel stuck with somebody? Well, other witnesses like Proverbs eighteen seventeen, the first to plead his case sounds right until someone else comes along. And examines him. And so are there young adult children or even adolescent children or other family members who are witnesses to the interaction? If you're not getting a clear picture of what's happening, uh, but I would go back to what we said before, what I really want to get at is the heart and the repetition of the patterns. I mean, sometimes it's just you're, somebody's lying or somebody's cognitively impaired, but usually it's the same sinful patterns that you're trying to break and you're trying to, how do I go beyond these horrible behaviors, which the Bible describes as fleshly and destructive to get at in the heart, the disconnect from the gospel and that they're treating each other in a judgmental way rather than a gracious way in which there's this fleshly outpouring rather than the fruit of the spirit. And so through the behavior, trying to get back to the heart. As a couple continues to come in uh, using this example, and it, it sounds like the discussion keeps going back to behavior for them, especially the other person's behavior, this kind of he said, she said dynamic that's taking place. How do you keep it from just continuing to do that if that's where they're always taking it, it seems? I've had sessions before where I'll go to Matthew 7 where you're told to get the log out of your own eye before you take the speck out of your brother's eye and just say, the rule right now for the rest of the hour is going to be you're only allowed to talk about your own log and you're not allowed to bring up the speck, you know, the, the other person's sin and trying to get beyond even their behavior. But back to James 4, what is it you desire? 
that's leading to this behavior. So just saying, we're going to make a ground rule during this session. You're only allowed to talk about your own sin and fight your own sin. Uh, another thing in terms of technique that has sometimes been helpful is to separate the combatants. And I've had good experience where when they're together, it's like to admit fault, to admit your sin, especially to admit your sinful motive that you haven't articulated. Is You feel like you're giving ammunition to the other person who you view as an enemy. But oftentimes where they would be unwilling to admit fault when they were together, when you get them separately, they're much more counselable and because they, they're not afraid that the other person's going to hear what you said and beat them over the head with it on the way home. Mm-hmm. And in those situations, you can also continue to affirm how much you are on their side in the sense of you're trying to help them towards that goal. Whereas when you have both of them there, that can get a little sticky if you're trying to assure one too much or right. something. Right. And that's another dynamic is you have both parties trying to prove to you is like you're the referee and they're going to prove to you that the other person's worse than they are. And they want to use you, want to weaponize you in terms of the war they're having with their enemy on the way home or for the rest of the week. Well, Jim said this, and I've had that come back to me that my words were repeated in that way. So again, ideally you would want everybody to be together, but I found cases where people were much softer as we tried to deal with it individually. So with this, he said, she said uh, situation, I think you've talked about it before where with some couples, one can't say a sentence without the other correcting some little detail of that sentence. And you can kind of, you notice that sometimes in arguments, sometimes you have it recorded, but I've had situations where they've even recorded it, but then something comes up in the counseling that wasn't recorded and then you get stuck on that too. So if that's a recurring um, dynamic, how do you navigate that without getting derailed by all these details? how we need the Lord's help when we counsel because you've got all this stuff swirling around you and you're having to make a decision of, is this important enough that I need to dwell on it, stop the other topic and deal with the new topic that's come up? You're trying to be even-handed in terms of not not being tougher on one than the other, but being completely even-handed is often unjust because sometimes one is far more guilty than the other. And equivalence wouldn't be fair. And so all these things are going on in your mind and you're just praying that God will show you mercy in the decisions you make. And I think the quicker you find yourself in the scriptures, applying the scripture to their situation, even if it's not the very best possible thing you could have thought of if you had three hours in a room by yourself to come up with the best solution, in the word of God, reminding them, you know, bringing God into the room, bringing the gospel into the room, remembering God's grace to them, and trying to get them to you know, live out what God has done for them. You're trying to get to that point. You won't do it perfectly, but at least it's going to be edifying and hopefully it'll address the problem. And that's where it goes back to what you said at the beginning of it's not just the behavior And it's not even just the words and the exact details of the situation always. It's even if those exact details aren't being recounted in the right way, it's the heart response that was often off because of a lack of the gospel. The lack of the gospel. And we're, again, I've mentioned the term before, they're really looking at each other as enemies. And they they regard each other in a way that a judge would look upon a guilty party. And they see themselves as more righteous and the other person is bad. 
and they need, instead of looking at that person as if they're the judge and they're condemning that person, graciously, as God looks at us, where God restores us, like Galatians 6, 1 says, he, he is gentle with us to, to care for that person, even if they're in sin, to try to help them rather than trying to Sometimes it sound, destroy them sounds extreme, but that sometimes is what they're doing. That's what Je- Jesus says in, in Matthew 5, that when someone's angry and you're saying hateful things, you're murdering them. And many marriages are sometimes it's not so much murder as maybe just slapping or something back and forth. But there's not a sense of saying, as someone who's received great grace from God and deserves none of that, God has put this person in my life to love them as God has loved me. And that's not based upon what they deserve and to just for that heart to be transformed. And you can preach the gospel to them in the counseling session. And it's wonderful sometimes to see where the Lord turns on the light and there is repentance and there's grace. Sometimes even one of them getting to that point can bring about great transformation. And that's one of the things you can instill either privately or as a couple of, boy, if just one of you seeks after this, it it injects so much hope into the situation. But I'd, I'd like to raise one other possibility, too, which is sometimes you can have one party, it could even be in an abusive situation, if not physically abusive, you know, hateful anger, which would be called verbal abuse, if, you know. Mm-hmm. And the Lord can work in the heart of one spouse to be gracious and to be kind, but it does not always change the other. And I think some people who have called themselves biblical counselors have not served their counselees well, almost saying it's usually the wife, it could go the other way, to the spouse who really does want to show grace, just keep showing more and more grace and keep taking the blame and because you're never perfect. And the controlling, angry person just feeds on that and they become worse and not better. Uh, you hope from First Peter 3, their heart would change, and that does sometimes happen. But I think we also need to be aware of our responsibility to protect the victim of abusive behavior from the person who's tearing them apart, sometimes physically, verbally, emotionally, and stand up and offer some protection in the context of the church uh, and not to, because it's not always an equivalent. Just if you were just a sweeter wife or a sweeter husband, this person would become nice. Some people are so wicked, the kinder you are to them, they just take advantage of that and hurt you all the more. And I think we need to be ready to recognize those situations and call it out for what it is. That sounds like a, a great uh, segue into our pre-conference for this year's Summer Institute, where Chris Moles is going to be talking about dealing with the heart of domestic violence. For me, just listening, it's really interesting that you raised that, and that's a dynamic I think we're not always aware of and watching out for. What brought that on your mind, that, that that's a dynamic to keep in mind in situations like this? Um, one was, I read an article recently in the Journal of Biblical Counseling, and I really resonated with the author describing situations where trying to be even-handed, they really were enabling an abusive person and a controlling person. And so I've seen cases, I think, where I've not been strong enough with the person who was the angry, controlling one. And so 
that's what put it in my mind. And just, again, you get into these situations as a counselor and how desperately they need God's help and God's mercy because he sees their hearts. He sees what's going on in the home. We don't see it, which is where you began. You're just getting these little snapshots. You haven't seen the video. But I think to be aware, that's one of the possible scenarios and situations like that. Then you may need to be thinking in terms of the church being involved. It can be a, a disciplinary matter. It can be a matter of protecting children. It can be a matter of learning from the children what's really going on in the home because you think people are in danger. Mm -hmm. I think what makes these situations so tricky is a lot of times by the time it's gotten to this point, typically the spouse who is um, less aggressive or the victim of the abuse is responding in sinful ways. And you can see those quickly in counseling, like she or he's like getting angry or saying things they shouldn't be saying. And so it's easy to just jump on that sin and miss what the other person has been doing instigating that and provoking it and abusing for a long time. Right. And I would also say that the abusive person is typically well-versed in the scriptures. And so they can make a very strong case why their wife should be so much more submissive. But it even go the other way, where my husband should be loving me in a Christ-like way, therefore he should be doing all this stuff for me. And if he's not, I'm going to treat him badly, become angry, be manipulative, be controlling, be vengeful. And in their own mind of the abusive personality, they are the most just person in the world. And sadly, they're the most biblical person in the world. They think they know the Bible better than you as the counselor, and their spouse needs correction to do what the Bible tells them to do. And you're going to be in for a great fight if you question them. Sometimes also these people will be looked upon by the church as knowledgeable. They obviously don't look in public like they do at home. And so they can be highly manipulative of other people around them to be sympathetic to their version of the situation. And you know, we have to be cautious. We can't assume every situation is that, but we need to be aware there are such situations. And again, my regret is not having recognized it more quickly when I saw it. It just reminds us of how desperate we are for the Lord's wisdom as we're trying to, just from limited interactions with people, seek to help them and really understand what's going on, which is uh, part of where we began of, of recognizing our dependence upon the Lord in that. As we kind of just zoom out with, with kind of just a closing question, just wondering in terms of people who, you know, they like coming week after week. So maybe it's not an abusive situation or maybe it is, but they come, but nothing seems to change. And, and they're, they're also not doing what you've asked them to do in terms of study. What do you do? Is it, what are appropriate ways to deal with that type of situation? It depends upon the environment in which you're counseling them. If you're meeting with someone in a counseling center environment, they're not in your church, your level of responsibility for them is not the same as if you're an elder, a shepherd over their soul. And I, I would get to the point saying, here's an assignment. When you're done with the assignment, call for your next appointment. But until you're willing to do that, I can't keep meeting. There are people waiting. And so that's one approach. What about in the church? The hardest situation in the church is the couple who have a mild case of the flu or moderate cold, 
and they never feel very good, but they're not quite sick enough for you to put them in the hospital. And their marriage goes on. And in my case, your case, we're in very, very happy marriages. And you say, why do these people always have a runny nose and my, you know, a degree of fever? They're kind of grumping at each other. They're not going to divorce probably, but they're just kind of slogging along. They don't treat each other the way they should. They're kind of law-based. They're not a lot of grace. And sometimes I just tell them, I'm tired of watching you live with a degree of fever and a bad cold or a mild case of the flu all the time. There's just something so much better that God has for you in marriage and to challenge them. Can I help you get some of these basic concepts down? But it's going to take it's going to take the work of the Spirit to do something that's never been done before, perhaps. And it's going to take from the side of human responsibility for you to be willing to make some big changes that could be transformative. Yeah. So holding that out clearly before them, probably being willing for them to hear other voices in the mix. I mean, if you're blessed in a church where there can be others who weigh in, taking a break from your counsel for a bit. and Right. And it's always possible that there's another couple or another individual in the church that will who will connect better with these people. And I'm happy for people to be helped by those other than myself. So that could be a suggestion. Sometimes you're just so busy, you might have someone else meet with them, disciple them, another couple. Do you put parameters in sometimes, even within the church setting of, you know, if it's just kind of this constant pattern and, and same old, same old, do you ever um, put some parameter before you meet with them again? It can be. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are a handful of people who love to meet and talk about their problems and don't want to do anything. And so I would probably just scale it back a bit. But I think where we began is it can be really helpful and it could even be refreshing just to step back from the situation and say, look, maybe you guys don't know how I see this. I want to just tell you that I care about you, but I'm really sad to see you're continuing to live with this mediocrity. And it does not have to be that way. And from what I can tell, here's why it's happening. It's happening because you're not wholeheartedly pursuing grace in your marriage. You're not wholeheartedly committing yourself to the effort that it takes to really love and care for the other person. And uh, you're willing to not use self-control that the Spirit offers you and the remarks you make to each other. And uh, you're making each other mildly miserable all the time. And I don't like watching it. And I don't like you suffering through that when the Lord offers you so much better that the Christian life, as you walk in the Spirit and the fruit it produces, and you have two people doing that together, it can be really wonderful. And why are you living this way? Yeah, and so that admonishment and, and encouragement can—it's helpful to lay it out there and let them know um, how you really see it, for sure. But like you said, and again, there's a difference. The couple, when there's physical abuse or there's, you know— drunkenness and violence and, you know, pornography or there's some things where it's very clear you need to step in and this needs to change or you're going to be under discipline. The hardest cases, and it's not just in marriages, it's Christians too, where they're just barely doing the minimum to be a church member. They're getting to church most weeks, not all weeks. They're not engaged in much and they're not doing that well spiritually, but not bad enough to be disciplined. And uh, and so you want to try to come alongside. And that's what shepherds do is they try to go after the wandering sheep and the weak sheep and the sick sheep and bring them to health and bring them into the fold. And yet our success is not in our technique. But I will say this, just to have shepherds who will do that and ladies who will go after the ladies like Titus do, 
will make a church a much more healthy place than most churches. Just that there's a, a vision for that in a church to notice who's there and not to be satisfied with that, but to, to care for souls and then use the means of grace and see what God does. Yeah. And, and pleading for the good of their souls and not just writing them off because they don't take your counsel or something like that. And not merely relying upon the public ministries, which are vital and primary, but realizing that good shepherds leave the 99 and chase after the one. Well, this whole conversation, I guess, being stuck in counseling just reminds us of our uh, frailties, our weaknesses, and our lack of knowing everything, that's for sure. And so um, back to where we started of dependence upon the Lord and that he would help us best understand how we can care for the people entrusted to us. Jim, I want to thank you for your time and answering these questions. And we want to thank you all for listening to this episode of the Care and Discipleship Podcast. Remember that you can submit your questions on the podcast page on our website, or you can send us an email at info at ibcd.org. We love hearing the questions that you have as we're all seeking to grow in our ability to care for one another with the Word of God. Mm -hmm.